chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page, and for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. Flight 1549. On Thursday afternoon, the 15th of January 2009, a flight leaving LaGuardia, New York, bound for Charlotte Douglas International in North Carolina, would suffer a catastrophic pair of engine failures, resulting in the ditching of the aircraft in the nearby Hudson River. The incident has been referred to as the miracle on the Hudson. It has had multiple documentaries made about it, as well as a popular movie entitled Sully, named after the nickname of the pilot on that flight. What's most interesting about this incident is as much about what went wrong as it was about what went right. So often we consider all the things that needed to align to lead to an incident occurring. Today, we'll look at the opposite, because it can happen, and it did on that day. US Airways Flight 1549 was an Airbus Industries A320-214, was granted clearance for takeoff at 3.24pm and 54 seconds local time, from runway 4, bearing north-northeast. There were 150 passengers and three flight attendants, the captain and first officer, for a total of 155 people aboard. It was the final flight in a four-day long trip sequence for the flight and cabin crew, and the second flight of the day for this specific aircraft. The previous leg from Charlotte Douglas to LaGuardia was reported as being uneventful. The flight path was north over New York City, then a left bank to head west towards Charlotte with an estimated flight time of two hours. At 3.25pm and 51 seconds, Captain Chelsea Sullenberger radioed the departure controller in the control tower that they had reached an altitude of 700 feet and were continuing to climb to 5,000 feet, to which the tower instructed them to climb to and maintain 15,000 feet. At 3.27pm and 10 seconds, Sullenberger noticed a flock of birds directly in the plane's path, and one second later, multiple birds struck the aircraft. At the moment of impact, the plane was at an altitude of 2,818 feet above ground level, travelling at 214 knots, or 396 kilometres per hour, and was located four and a half miles north-northwest of the approach end of runway 22 at LaGuardia, and nine and a half miles east-northeast of the approach end of runway 4 at Teterboro. Four seconds after impact, both engines began to lose thrust, with both the engine fan and core speeds dropping significantly. Three seconds after impact, First Officer Jeffrey Skiles remarked about the loss of thrust, with Sullenberger noting that both of the engines were rolling back. Without takeoff thrust, the plane was losing approximately 18 feet of altitude with every passing second, which gave less than three minutes of flying time before the plane would reach ground level if the engines could not be restarted. At 3.27pm and 23 seconds, Sullenberger took control of the plane and asked Skiles to locate and read through the procedure from the Quick Reference Handbook, the QRH, for a loss of thrust in both engines. Ten seconds after taking control, Sullenberger radioed LaGuardia Tower reporting the bird strike and their intention to return to LaGuardia. Upon reaching step C of the engine dual failure checklist for a fuel remaining condition, noting the requirement to maintain optimum relight airspeed of 300 knots, Sullenberger noted, we don't have that. At 3.28pm and 5 seconds, 
Bagardia suggested a landing attempt on runway 13, with Sullenberger responding, We're unable. We may end up in the Hudson. At 3.28pm and 31 seconds, Lagardia suggested runway 31, with Sullenberger responding, We're unable, as the plane continued to lose altitude. At 3.28pm and 46 seconds, Lagardia suggested a return to runway 4, with Sullenberger responding, I'm not sure we can make any runway. What's over to our right? Anything in New Jersey, perhaps? Maybe Teterboro. During this time, Skiles had been attempting the engine restart procedure unsuccessfully. At 3.29 and 11 seconds, Sullenberger announced over the aircraft PA system, this is the captain, brace for impact. At 3.29pm and 21 seconds, LaGuardia instructed a right turn to 280 degrees for runway 1 at Teterboro, with Sullenberger responding after a brief interaction with Skiles, we're going to be in the Hudson. On final approach to the river, the pilot managed to clear the George Washington Bridge with a few hundred feet to spare. Angling the plane as close to 11 degrees as possible, the optimal landing angle for this scenario, and keeping the airspeed above 130 knots, otherwise he'd risk a stall. Too much steeper and the tail would drag and split the fuselage in half on impact, too much shallower and the engines would bite into the water first and tear the fuselage in half on impact. At 3.29pm and 53 seconds, LaGuardia lost radar contact with Flight 1549 as they extended the landing flaps and began to align the plane for a water landing in the Hudson River. At 3.30pm and 41 seconds, the enhanced ground proximity warning system alerted a 50-foot warning as both Sully and Skiles braced for impact. The plane impacted the water at 3.30pm and 43 seconds. Miraculously, the plane had landed at an angle such that the fuselage had remained mostly intact. However, the plane began taking on water through vents that were still open and now unable to be closed as well from the damage to the tail section bulkhead from the force of the impact was also allowing water into the aircraft. The water temperature in the Hudson was approximately 2 degrees Celsius, 35 degrees Fahrenheit, with exhaustion or unconsciousness if fully immersed of up to about 20 minutes maximum. 75 seconds after impact, the left overwing door had been opened and the first passengers had begun to escape the sinking aircraft. By this time, the aircraft was stationary in the water, though carried downriver by the current, when the flight attendants had opened doors one right and one left. One right's slide had inflated automatically, however one left required manual inflation triggering before it would inflate. By this time, the rear exit doors were completely submerged and could not be opened. Passengers attempting to escape via the wings were hampered by jet fuel in the water, making the wing surface very slippery and several slipped and fell into the icy water of the Hudson River. By 3.31pm and 26 seconds, both front slides had been deployed and passengers were making their escape by the front of the plane as well. At 3.34pm and 40 seconds, the first rescue vessel arrived at the scene. The boats that came to rescue the passengers initially were passenger ferries, with decks that rose at least 7 feet above the water level. To get aboard, survivors had to climb ladders to reach the deck and struggled in the cold. The inflatable side rafts were also still tethered to the fuselage, and in order to separate them, one of the rescue boats threw a knife so the crew could separate the raft from the fuselage. By 3.55pm, the last vessel departed, having collected all passengers and crew as the aircraft began to sink further into the river. Prior to leaving the aeroplane, Captain Sullenberger had walked up and down the aisle twice to confirm that there was no one left on board. One of the cabin crew and four passengers sustained serious injuries, but all made a full recovery, 
with 95 passengers sustaining minor injuries. For those interested, Title 49 Part 830 of the NTSB entitled Notification and Reporting of Aircraft Accidents or Incidents and Overdue Aircraft and Preservation of Aircraft Wreckage Mail Cargo and Records states, Any minor injury is any injury that does not qualify as a fatal or serious injury. The regulation defines a serious injury as any injury that, 1. requires hospitalisation for more than 48 hours, starting within seven days from the date of injury. 2. Results in a fracture of any bone, except simple fractures of fingers, toes or the nose. 3. Causes severe hemorrhages of nerve, muscle or tendon damage. 4. Involves any internal organ. Or 5. Involves second or third degree burns or any burns affecting more than 5% of the body. Media attention after the incident was extreme and it was well documented from smartphone, video footage, surveillance camera footage, and the fact that the incident occurred in New York. The incident was called the Miracle on the Hudson, mainly due to the improbability of a jet landing on the water without incurring any fatalities. Following the incident, there were several areas of focus. Why did the Airbus dual-engine failure checklist not include a low airspeed option? Part of the training simulator for the A320 included a dual-engine failure, but this was at an altitude of 25,000 feet, with which there was plenty of time to act and attempt a restart via windmilling. In addition, the training simulator covered the failure of a single engine at launch at low altitude and low speed, however, not both engines. The probability of such an incident was such that it was not considered likely and therefore no checklist for it had ever been developed. Second area of focus, why did the pilots choose to ditch in the Hudson River? From April 14th to the 16th, 2009, the NTSB, with cooperation from Airbus, US Airways and the US Airplane Pilots Association and the BEA, conducted multiple detailed flight simulations that mimicked the plane's operational state at the time of impact from the flock of birds. They used the Airbus Formal Training Center in Toulouse, France using an Airbus A320 full-motion pilot training simulator with a fixed-base engineering simulator. The intention was to determine whether or not Flight 1549 could have landed at either LaGuardia or Teterboro on any runway, given an immediate decision to attempt either airport, or with an additional 35-second delay before committing to attempt to land at any other airport. 20 simulator runs were performed from a pre-programmed point shortly before the loss of engine thrust in which pilots attempted to return to a runway. However, five of those 20 runs were discarded due to poor data or simulator malfunctions. Of the 15 flight runs with valid data, runway 22 at LaGuardia, six attempts were made, two successfully landed. Runway 13 at LaGuardia, seven attempts were made, five successfully landed. Runway 19 at Teterboro. Two attempts were made, one successfully landed. However, all of these successful landing simulations were based on pre-briefed pilots making a decision at the moment of impact. All attempts in all simulations to return to an airport after a 35-second delay failed. Robert Sumwalt, an NTSB member, in a concluding statement in the formal NTSB report, reiterated his strong belief that the landing constituted a forced landing on water rather than a ditching. Whilst the difference between the two might be considered by some to be such that they're used interchangeably in conversation, there is a subtle but important difference between the two terms. 
In a footnote of a 1985 NTSB safety study, a proposed definition describing the difference such that ditching usually means a planned event in which the flight crew with the aircraft under control knowingly attempts to land in the water, in contrast to an inadvertent water impact in which there is no time for passenger or crew preparation, ditching allows some time for the donning of life preservers, and so on. The NTSB's report, conclusion finding number 15, and I quote, the captain's decision to ditch on the Hudson River rather than attempting to land at an airport provided the highest probability that the accident would be survivable. End quote. The next point of focus, should the engines have been able to withstand a bird strike of this type? The aeroplane was equipped with two CFM International 56-5B4-P dual-rotor turbofan engines. CFM is a partnership between the General Electric Company in the USA and Société Nationale d'Etude et de Construction de Moteurs d'Aviation, or SNECMA for short. Analysis of the DNA of the remains of the birds determined that they were migratory Canadian geese. According to the NTSB, the engine met the bird ingestion certification regulations in effect at the time of the engine certification, as well as an anticipated additional regulation it was not required to meet at the time of certification originally. Both engines were operating normally until they each ingested at least two large birds weighing approximately eight pounds each, one of which was ingested into each engine core, causing mechanical damage that prevented the engines from being able to provide sufficient thrust to sustain flight. If the accident engine's electronic control system had been capable of informing the flight crew members about the continuing operational status of the engines, or lack thereof, they would have been aware that thrust could not have been restored, and if that had happened, they would not have spent valuable time trying to relight the engines, which were far too damaged for any pilot action to ever make them operational again. The size and number of birds ingested by the accident engines well exceeded the current bird ingested certification requirements. Although engine design changes and protective screens have been used or considered in some engines and aircraft designs as a means to protect engines from bird ingestion, neither option was found to be viable on turbofan engines this type. Recommendations from the NTSB included to modify 14 Code of Regulations 33.6c, small and medium flocking bird certification test standard, to require that the test be conducted using the lowest expected fan speed instead of a 100% or full speed fan speed for the minimum climbing rate. During the Bird Ingestion Rulemaking Database, or BRDB, there's actually a database for that, Working Group's re-evaluation of the current engine bird ingestion certification requirements specifically re-evaluate large flocking bird certification test standards to determine whether they should, one, apply to engines with an inlet area of less than 3,875 square inches and two, include a requirement for engine core ingestion. In 2018, or last year at the time of this recording, a proposal to add medium flocking bird test at climb condition test proposal by the Federal Aviation Authority was put forward to directly address and exceed the conditions of this incident. Even once the detail of this has been accepted, engines will still need to be designed or redesigned to comply and will need to be integrated into existing or newer airframes before the benefits can be realised. That said, progress is moving in the right direction, it seems. Another question, why did the aeroplane take on so much water so quickly? 
The Airbus is fitted with a ditch button that is specifically designed to seal multiple vents in the aeroplane to ensure maximum survival time in the water. However, in the limited time that was available to the pilots, they never reached a point in the checklist, and hence, once the plane was in the water, the systems that could close the vents would no longer function. This unfortunately then accelerated the rate at which the plane took on water and ultimately sank. And one more interesting item of note, the aeroplane in question was equipped for an extended overwater flight, which means it had forward slide rafts installed, even though it was not required to have them, as it did not fly extended overwater or EOW routes. Just lucky, I suppose. Regarding bird strikes, at least 229 people have died and 194 aircraft have been destroyed as a result of wildlife strikes in both civil and military operations between 1988 and April 2009, according to a study by Richardson and West. Since 1960, 26 large transport aircraft have been destroyed due to bird strikes worldwide and 93% of these strikes occurred during takeoff or landing at an altitude of about 500 feet above ground level or less, when the aeroplane was still near an airport. The number of bird strikes has increased gradually over the past few decades. Reasons cited for this include that there are more airports, there are more aeroplanes in the air, and that those aeroplanes generally have quieter engines than those in the past, as we've progressed from piston-powered engines to turbine-powered to turbofan technology predominantly used today. Since travelling at aircraft speeds makes it impossible to avoid striking birds with human and airframe reaction and response times, stronger construction methods are being investigated for future designs. Today, Sullenberger retired in 2010, with his final flight being US Airways Flight 1167 from Fort Lauderdale, Florida to Charlotte, North Carolina. When he landed, he was reunited with his co-pilot from Flight 1549, Jeff Skiles, and a half-dozen of the passengers from that flight. Today, Sullenberger is an international lecturer and keynote speaker. He's focused on educating surrounding aviation safety, high-performance systems improvement, risk and crisis management. Jeffrey Skiles continues to fly today and is also a motivational speaker. So a little bit about the movie. Most notably, the 2016 film Sully invented an antagonism that wasn't part of what happened in reality. The NTSB was never consulted or even contacted by anybody with the film and they were notably absent from the post-film credits. Other inaccuracies in the popular film include NTSB interviews with both the pilot and co-pilot together, which is strictly against NTSB interview guidelines. They're always done independently. In the closing part of the film, the NTSB open hearing presented very little resemblance to what actually transpired. In short, it's just a movie and to some extent, entertaining, but rather like Deepwater Horizon, artistic license was used and many truths were bent and some were totally broken. It's a movie, after all, but it made $240 US at the box office, so I guess there's that. So what do we conclude from all this? The things that we build as a species, things like buildings, cars, trains, boats, aeroplanes, and so on, they make it far easier for multiple people to be injured or killed if and when something goes wrong. You'd be forgiven for thinking, based on this show, that we collectively make mistakes and things go wrong and people get injured or lose their lives, and, and, and that's all that happens, or it happens all the time. But that's not really the case at all. The designers of the Airbus A320 placed limits on the engines they selected. Birds of a certain size would still render them inoperable, 
and that was a trade-off that most of the time would be perfectly fine, they met standards. When placing major airports close to other airports or open areas like waterways where it's possible to ditch if necessary, if all else fails, those are choices as well. Airports have wildlife control programs designed to keep nesting birds away from flight paths, as they did here, but this flock was, for all intents, completely random. But even with those choices, when things go wrong, it still landed on the pilots, who had done nothing wrong, to try and recover the situation. And in this case, they did. Every time we are in charge of the lives of others in anything we do, some of us more than others, we're responsible in part for that outcome, if and when things go wrong. If you're operating a machine like a car, or if it's your job, driving a bus, flying a plane, whatever it might be, it's your responsibility to show up to that, well-rested, switched on, concentrating, taking it responsibly and to do your best job. Because if you do that, and something goes wrong, then you'll be in the best possible position to ensure that nobody gets hurt and nobody dies. And in the case of Flight 1549, Captain Chelsea Sullenberger and First Officer Jeffrey Skiles managed to land the plane in a river when things went wrong that they couldn't control, and everybody lived. On flight 1549, we looked at what went wrong, but this time, some things went really right, and the worst outcome was actually prevented. I wouldn't personally call it a miracle, but I would call it amazing. If you're enjoying Causality and want to support the show, you can via Patreon at patreon.com slash johnchigi or one word. With a thank you to all our patrons and a special thank you to our silver producers, Carsten Hansen, John Whitlow and Joseph Antonio. And an extra special thank you to our gold producer, known only as R. Patron rewards include a named thank you on the website, a named thank you at the end of episodes, access to raw detailed show notes, as well as ad-free, high-quality releases of every episode. With patron audio now also available via individual breaker audio feeds, So if you'd like to contribute something, anything at all, there's lots of great rewards. And beyond that, it's all really, really appreciated. There's lots of other ways you can help, like leaving a rating or review on iTunes, favoriting this episode in your podcast player app, or sharing the episode or the show with your friends or via social. All these things help others discover the show and can make a huge difference too. Causality is part of the Engineered Network, and you can find it at engineered.network. You can also follow me on the Fediverse at chidgy at engineered.space or the network on Twitter at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chichi. Thanks so much for listening. Yay, we go on with a happy ending. Well, except for the geese.